Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's class. Well, what a beautiful day, and thanks for giving your evening uh, to some study. Appreciate that, and that's encouraging to me. We're uh, in week 10 of 12, so that tells you where we're going to head. Uh, we're going to do the book of Hebrews tonight in our study, and then next week uh, we will cover all of the letters following Hebrews into Revelation, and then the very last night we'll cover the book of Revelation. Remember that the location for week 12 may be uh, in another place, uh, in that the high school and junior high kids may be using this room for a corporate night of worship, so we'll let you know next week where we're going to be. Uh, we could be at the student center, we could be at the, we could be anywhere. We could be out in the lobby, we could be at McDonald's, just pay attention and uh, we'll find a good location. So if you take a look at your notes, what you're going to realize about the book of Hebrews is that it is written to Jewish Christians. If you look at the other books that we've covered, Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, and so forth, you're going to notice that those were probably written most likely to Gentiles. Where the towns were located would not have been highly, uh, high density of Jews. Would have been more of people like you and I. And so uh, for the letter of Hebrews was written to an audience that would understand it. Uh, there are several ways to explain it. There would be like if there are ad- avid baseball fans in this room. And there were people who watch it occasionally but don't understand it. How you would explain the game of baseball to them would be very, very unique how to explain it to the novice who kind of understands baseball. Uh, You would have to do a lot of rules. You'd have to really simplify it and give them just the basics. If I'm talking to baseball aficionados, I can drop names of greats who played really well. I can mention someone and allude to their defensive abilities. I can say Ozzie Smith, and people would go, yeah, I remember him. He was amazing. I can go on and I can talk about home run hitters. You can talk about Babe Ruth or Barry Bonds. You, could, you can do all of these things, and people that are into the game would know, right? Makes just simple sense? The bo- Pardon? Well, okay, listen, I, I could go all night, okay? Uh, there, there were two or three Cubs that were all right. Uh, When you're talking in the letter to the Hebrews, which is why it's called Hebrews, Paul, or or, excuse me, that was a a slip. Paul didn't write this. Whoever wrote it was writing to a level of understanding to somebody who knew what the Old Testament law meant. It knew what angels were all about. Uh, Paul didn't write those kind of letters at that degree. Some have said that the book of Hebrews, or the letter to the Hebrew Christians, was, was a graduate level declaration of the supremacy of Jesus. So if we can get that in our heads, and I know you're capable, but you have to keep that in mind. So when you read the letter to the Hebrews, here's the warning. There are going to be things said and nuances mentioned that are hard for us to understand because we didn't grow up under the sacrificial system. We, don't, we didn't have to go to a priest to be absolved. We didn't have to offer a sacrifice. We weren't We weren't awakened by this Messiah in our day. So because of that, we have to catch up. We're learning the rules of the game at a deeper level than most any other book in the New Testament. But here's what I want you to to get. If if I were going to preach through the book of Hebrews, there's one term that comes to mind. It's not just mine. It's been used probably for 300 years greater than. That is the summation of the book of the letter. Jesus is greater than fill in the blank. 
no matter what you come up with, he's greater than that. And he's writing, or she's writing, whoever wrote, <coughs> excuse me, this letter, is writing to a group of Jews who had bought in to the sacrificial system and how they could make themselves better. And this, the author of this letter writes to them and says, I'm going to show you that everything you've put your hope in is lesser than Jesus and himself. So put them all together. Uh, I know this is kind of a weird thing, but let's try it. Uh, when our Alex, uh, our oldest son, was younger, he fell in love with Pokemon. Just nod your head if you know what those things are. Okay, it's a little Japanese anime characters. And at the point that Alex was into them, there were 150 of them. And one day he was in his room, and I said, I would just grab one and go, okay, there's three levels. I know you're excited about this, so let me tell you, okay? Remember aficionados and novices. Okay, there were these little characters, and one, like, level one would evolve into this level two, and level two would evolve into level three, and then level three would get superpowers and evolve into this higher level Pokemon, level four. And I would just reach in. Of course, Alex was spoiled rotten by all of his grandparents, first grandkid on both sides. He had almost every little figurine, little tiny, like, weeble kind of things. And I would reach in the bucket and pull it up and say, what level and what does it become? And he would snap those off in a second. So I went to this PhD at Central that went to our church. He was in uh, childhood psychology. And I said, is he weird? Is this normal? Of course, I could have told you every Major League Baseball player on every roster from 1974 until probably now. So he kind of got the memory of unimportant things like I got. And so I said to Alvin Keast, I said, is this weird that he can tell me the evolution patterns of every Pokemon, all 150? And he said something to me that was fascinating. He said, do you know every kid will pick up something that no one else in their family picks up on because they want to be an expert in one thing? And I thought, mine was baseball. Alex's was Pokemon. Braden's was the WWE. Especially men. Children, boys will pick up one thing that nobody else knows, so they're the expert at it. Okay, why do I tell you that story? Because the evolution of this letter needs to be teaching us something. And that is that there are these things we put together. And I'd pull out two, and I'd say, you grab two. And he'd reach in and pull out two, and I'd say, can these two Pokemons beat these two Pokemons? And he'd look at me like, oh, silly man. <laughs> He didn't just reach in and grab just anybody. He reached in and grabbed the ones. He watched what I picked, and that little guy reached in and grabbed the ones that would defeat mine instantly, without an effort. The letter of Hebrews is based on this presumption. Bring your best shot at being saved, and I'm going to trump it with Jesus. Make sense? So if it's about him, let's pray, and then we'll talk about him. Father, thank you for tonight. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about a book that's so deep. It resounds from the Old Testament. And God, I, I pray that you'll help us as we become more and more aware of the power of the imagery that uh, will be open to the fact that even though the Old Testament had a lot of laws and rules, it was good, and it brought us Jesus, and it created a nation of faith from Abraham forward, and we get to be blessed to be grafted into that tree. But God, I thank you that most of all, whether I understand everything about sacrifices and priests and everything else, I know this one thing. Jesus is greater than anything. So we base our life on him. Help us to know him more as we study this tonight. 
I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So, who wrote it? No clue. You can nominate your uncle. I have no idea if you're right or not. The authorship was not uh, placed in this. What is the book about? It's, it compares Old Testament prop, or excuse me, it compares the Old Testament to New Testament revelations. It takes the Old Testament symbols and connects them to New Testament revelations. This was, where was it written? It was written to Hebrew Christians everywhere. What's important about that, it was a circular letter. So I would get a copy of it from whoever wrote it would give it to me and I would write out what it was and then I would pass the letter on and I would give it to you and then you would write it out or have it transcribed and then you would hand it to somebody else and it went house to house to house to church to church to church. And, and the Jewish Christians would read this. Now, that's a big buildup and introduction but here's what I think is important because context matters in Bible study. Who's it written to? When was it written? What was going on in the moment? Okay? And so, because the context was important, it would be very important to, to realize what would, be a, what would a Jewish Christian be facing that a Gentile Christian would not? Family. Right? So, do you know even today, Orthodox Jewish families will treat as if their child is dead if their child converts to another religion. Most religions do that. Uh, I've had moments where I remember uh, I was going to baptize a Muslim girl from Central Michigan University. She'd been in a Bible study at our church. She wanted to be baptized, and she called me one night and said she couldn't go through with it. And I talked to her on the phone, and I said, well, come see me tomorrow. And we met uh, the next day, and she basically told me that her father said that he would pull her. He was a dignitary in another country. He would have her visa pulled, her student visa pulled. He would not pay her bills, and she would be uh, demanded to come home instantly if she confessed Christ. And that was a hard conversation. And so she went back for a year trying to get her father's approval, and we never heard from her again. Okay? These, these Jewish Christians would get this letter, and what it was meant to do for them was to give them the rationale to remember, don't go back to the old way. The old way couldn't save you. Stay with the way of Christ and see what happens. So that's why we say it was written to Hebrew Christians everywhere. Circular letter that would have been passed around as encouragement. It was written before A.D. 70. So it was written before the destruction of the temple. And then I already told you the why. Jesus is greater than anything you try to save yourself by. Okay, a little history. Christianity was a Jewish movement until when? Until the persecution of the church. And when the persecution of the church hit in the book of Acts, you can see what happened. They began to go to Gentile towns and preach this Jesus and people began to be saved. And what was once contained by the Jews was released to the Gentiles. It's called the mystery of Christ, the book of Ephesians. And it didn't matter then. Uh, you know, there are some people, in, and uh, Peter talked a little bit about this when he covered Romans while I was away. Um, there's a lot of people who, uh, you know, read the book of uh, Romans and when it talks about Israel they often think of nationalistic Israel what, what we would call Israel today and there's a lot more scholars that believe the Israel being spoken of is the church and how you interpret the book of Romans with the term of Israel really has a political effect today doesn't it 
Because there's a lot of people who think we've got to salvage Israel. Well, if he was talking about the new Israel, the church, the Jews and Gentiles together, fathered by Abraham's faith, not his genetics, it becomes quite an interesting uh, conversation. So, we're going to break Hebrews down into four chunks. Let's look at the first four chapters of this book. The first uh, three verses are very powerful. It's the identification of Jesus as God. Now, a lot of times in the Gospels, he's called Son of God or Son of Man. But here, the author really goes in and talks about his sonship gives him equality with God and talks about the fact that he's the exact representation of God's being. One of the things Jesus did, and I, I know you've heard this before, I have too, and I've even said it before, but it's hard to understand, is that there's not a lot of descriptions. There's characteristics of God. In fact, if we sat down and write 10 things you know about God, I'm suspicious, not because you're ignorant, but because of culture, that three of the 10 things we would write down would not be biblical. They would be culturally spoken of. They would be assumed. You know, you could ask 15 people, and 10 of them are going to say, God's a wrathful God. And the Bible says he's a wrathful God. But is that, term, is that term sufficient for what the Bible says about his wrath? His wrath is reserved for who? Those who reject the sacrifice of his son. But is God a wrathful God? You know, we have an Old Testament God who smites, and we have a New Testament God who loves. Which is he? So when we want to know what God is like, to the best of our ability to understand it, we, the only place we can affirm that is in Jesus. So how did Jesus, how did Jesus treat those who were opposed to him? Well, sometimes he called them brood of vipers, but he never said, don't love them. He called out the wrong, but he loved the person, and he always treated them with that same love. So when you wonder, when you have these questions about the Old Testament God who smites and the New Testament God who forgives, is he, did, he, did he change over time? Absolutely not. Look at how Jesus responded in the same circumstances and you'll have a snapshot of the character of God. Second piece, Jesus' superiority to angels in representing God's work. This is one of those pieces where an American Christian in 2015 goes, yeah, I don't care, angels are unimportant. But to the audience of the day, what was an angel? A messenger of God. If you would change the word angel in your Bible to messenger of God, you would get the full impact of what's being written every time it's used. A messenger of God appeared to the shepherds. A messenger of God appeared to Mary. A messenger of God appeared to Gideon. Three messengers of God appeared to Abraham. But we turn the word angels in, and what do we all think of? Hummel dolls, right? We picture these little pristine, baby-faced cherubs who fly around with golden wings and halos. And that's not biblical at all. It was imagery from the Renaissance period. Because in fact, if you really want to have cool and, and see what an angel is, by the descriptions in the Old Testament, they're more like transformers than they are precious moments. I mean... These guys are tough. They're ripped, six-packs, big. They didn't have shirts on. They were men. They fought. Michael fought wars. The archangel Michael is a man's man. John Wayne was a wimp, comparatively. But what do we have today in our culture? We have pictures of angels as these little naked guys, very skinny and playing harps floating on clouds. That's so not biblical. 
So when these guys would read the letter that the angels, they didn't, they didn't think of just these softies. What they thought of were messengers of God who carried fire and weaponry and came to deliver the truth. Now, if you had that mindset about angels and I came and told you Jesus is a greater messenger than them, that has a lot more weight than it does to us, doesn't it? And therein you have what's taking place here. His superiority to angels would not have been something that everybody went, oh yeah, of course. They would have gone, what? Wait, wait, I thought angels. Yeah, because whenever an angel showed up, men got scared. In fact, what's very common is when you hear the words of the angels throughout scripture, do you know what the first statement most of them make is? Do not be afraid. Well, why would they say that? Because people were like, oh, I'm dead. And then you read Revelation And John gets a glimpse of the man that he knew for three and a half years, who he loved passionately, who he had a relationship with. Have you ever noticed in the book of Revelation what John does when he sees Jesus in his glorified state? He falls on his face expecting to die, and Jesus says, what again? Do not fear. That comparison to angels is in your New Testament. It's just easy for us to miss it. Third, now, here's a study within a study. The book of Hebrews is a complicated book. It's not hard to understand. It's just hard to get the context of it because of how we live and where we live. But in the book of Hebrews are four warnings. If I ever get a chance, you know, you guys keep me around long enough and the elders tolerate me, I think I want to do a series through Hebrews focusing on the four warnings. Because in these four warnings is some really good truth for Gentiles today as well as Jews today. The first warning is against drifting. Now, here's a little pop quiz. Why do you drift? In Michigan, for the two and a half weeks that it's nice there in the summer, people do this thing on Sunday afternoons. I would get asked all the time, and we would do it. Hey, do you want to go down to the river and drift? Do you know what that meant? Get on an inner tube, lay on your back, and float the river. And we'd have someone drive us 10 or 15 miles up, and we would hop in the Chippewa River, and we would drift. How do you drift? Do nothing. Yeah, just do nothing. Let the current take you where it's going to go. What's the warning here? Don't drift away from who Jesus is. How do you drift away from who Jesus is? Do nothing. That's how, that's how you do that. Just keep doing the old things you used to do, and float along in life, and what's going to happen? You're going to end up going away. Now, they'll tell you nautical terms, you drift when the moorings are, are loosened. So if you don't attach yourself to Christ, the world is going to take you away from him. I probably told this way too many times in my time here at the church, but I loved what my grandfather taught me one time. I used to have this vision of the road to heaven. You know, Jesus said there's a narrow road that leads to heaven, there's a wide road, and, and, and well, there's a narrow road that leads to heaven and few are on it, and there's a wide road that leads to hell and many are on it. Remember that imagery he painted? Well, I always had this picture of the road to hell was this four-lane highway paved and it was all downhill right in the hell. And that the road to heaven was up mountain climbing and in crevices and having the spelunk or whatever that thing is to get to the top. And one day I was... My brothers and I, we were talking about something. We didn't have a lot of spiritual conversations, my brothers and I, but one day we were happily talking about that. It may have happened in church. And my grandfather, who didn't say a whole lot, but when he did, it was just pinpoint. He said, you know, I've always thought that the road to hell 
or the road to heaven ran right through the road to hell just in the opposite direction. And that started to make sense to me because every time I walked into high school, the tendency when I got caught in the crowd was to go with them this way when everything in my body told me I needed to go that way. So we can relate to that, right? People are shaking their heads. When you've got, how many of you woke up today and said, you know what, I'm going to walk the road to hell? (laughs) Not a single one of us. But how many of us have ended today going, I was on the road to hell. I absolutely went further that direction than I've ever wanted to go a day in my life. How does that happen? Because Satan does not contrast himself to Jesus. He makes himself look like Jesus, i.e. anti-Christ. But Satan's a counterfeit. So he takes good things, turns them into bad things, and we chase them down this road. Instead of fighting against the current. And evangelism, by its core, is hooking people going that direction and giving them a reason to go this direction. Against the flow. So the author of Hebrews says, don't drift. Fourth, Jesus as the source of man's salvation. This would have been hard for a Jew to hear. How did Jews think they got saved? Oh, they actually would have never used the word saved. Why did a Jew think he was going to heaven? Because he was Jewish. Exactly. So Jesus said, no, no, your being Jewish isn't good enough. How would that have gone over? What if I stood up here on a Sunday morning and said, if you're white and American, you're out? About 1% of the people that worship here are of different ethnicity. They would be going, yeah, suckers! And the rest of us would be going, oh, you mean just because the color of my skin, I, go, I don't get to go in? Well, the opposite was the belief of the Jews. Just because of who I am and my ethnicity, I'm in. So when the writer of Hebrews said to them, no, you have to understand, without the sacrifice, okay, I'm going a thousand directions. Now. Hang with me. It's all going to snap together. I hope we're done. When Jesus came over the hilltop and John the Baptist was in the Jordan River, what did John say when he saw Jesus? Behold the Lamb. Was he talking to Jews or Gentiles at that moment? Jews. Why Jews? The Lamb made sense to a Jew. would not have made sense to a Gentile. You know, we would have laughed. A lamb, (laughs) a goat, a pig. You know, we'd have had fun like that. The Jews got it. What did you need to sacrifice on the Passover to have your, or the Day of Atonement, to have your sins cleansed. A perfect lamb. One to two years of age, without spot or blemish. I'm told that when they would go to the Passover meal, that they would often tell the oldest son to watch the lamb. Why? Yeah, because if they got bit, knocked over, roughed up, and ruined, they couldn't offer the sacrifice. Jesus comes over. The first public statement made about him was, that's the lamb. Little did they know, three years later, he would be. The imagery that's flowing through this is is pretty intense. So he's showing in chapter 2 that Jesus is the only way a man is saved. He's the lamb. The only thing that could have wiped our sins off forever. Number five, Jesus is greater than Moses. Not as as big a deal as the angels or lesser? As big. Yeah, he represents the law. And what was the law to the Jews? The means by which my Jewishness saved me. I have the secret password. 
I have the hall pass of all hall passes. I can get anywhere with this Jewish card. I'm not making fun of people with Jewish uh, heritage. Uh, We need to thank God for the Jewish people. It's because the people of Abraham brought us faith. And the Jewish church redeemed our lives and introduced us to the Jewish Messiah. So I don't want you to take my comments. I'm trying to differentiate for us tonight that this audience was very proud of their heritage as they should be. Okay, number six, warning against unbelief. Now, I didn't count this as one of the big warnings. There are five, but I think what he's doing here is he's alluding back to Moses because if he says that Jesus is greater than Moses and they're like, yeah, but Moses brought us the law, then the author of Hebrews says, but do you remember when they were in the wilderness? How much did the people of Moses' day even respect him? I just finished reading through uh, Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. At the end of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is checked out. He, he goes, he dies up in the hillside, and, and God buries him. And in that moment, if, if I counted correctly, and, and give, me, give me a plus or minus one on this, okay? I believe it's four different times the people of Israel rebelled against Moses, and God said to Moses, I am going to flick them off my globe. And all four or five or three times it was, what did Moses do each and every time? He said to God, don't worry, I'm going to paraphrase, don't worry about how they treat me. I don't want that to look bad on you. So, do you understand why the Hebrew author puts in, be careful of your unbelief? Because you may champion Moses, but the people of Moses' day didn't even champion Moses. God sent this great leader to them, and as long as he fed them or gave them water, they were happy. If he didn't do either one of those, they complained. And when Moses got to go on the mountain, he must have had a bunch of little younger brothers because they were down on the bottom of the hill going, why does he get to go on the mountain? His brother and sister were complaining. Why does he get the one that gets talked directly to God? Why don't we get the one? And then the sister got leprosy. (laughs) Everyone's like, don't question why God does what God does. So you can see, right, the connection here. Unbelief is related to, you think Moses was all that? The people of his day didn't think he was all that. He wasn't their salvation. All right, number seven, the promise of a Sabbath rest. Concept of a Sabbath rest in in our culture, I don't mean America, in our world today is, no, we reward productivity. Uh, We reward people that work 18 hours a day. We celebrate them as the ideal. And yet, what we don't do in that, it's like a tithe. When you won't give God 10% of your money, it's established the fact that you don't trust God. And when you won't rest, it's establishing you don't trust God. God told the Israelites to do an amazing thing. He said, every seven years, in the field you plant, I want you to do what? Nothing. Don't plant the field. So are you supposed to spray it and protect it? No, what did God say? Let it lie. In fact, I think the good old-fashioned King James word is, let it lie fallow. Now, do you know what research has been done? And in fact, I read this report, I got it in one of my files, by the University of Illinois, that the yields for six years on a field that's left alone after the seventh year is so much more than if you planted that same field seven years in a row. So, now did God do that to punish us, or did God tell you, no, the the machinery I put in place when it comes to the soil is, it can only give you six years of yield, and then it needs time off. 
And farmers know that. Yeah, you know, if you run horses, I'm told that you learn a horse's cycle and you know when to let a horse lay down. And even though you need the horse to work, the horse can't work. And yet we all think we're better than every other system God created, right? We can go as hard as we want, as long as we want, and we'll be better productivity because productivity gives us money and fame and accomplishment. The Sabbath rest is a statement of trust. And I know psychologists have told me this, and I know some doctors who have told me this, that without a regular routine rest, your body will begin to break down. Depression and many other things are attributed to the fact that we are just running this engine hot all the time and never let it sit and relax. Why can't we relax? Because we're fearful we won't have enough. Or someone will pass us by, or, or this or that. It's all the work of Satan. Remember, Satan has made something as good as productivity into an idol. So what's the Sabbath rest? Well, he, uh, the author here alludes to the Israelites' rest in Moses' day when they conquered Canaan. That they were to celebrate and thank God and bring offerings of sacrifice for all he's already given them, not to accomplish anything else. Okay, so that's the first piece. Let's go a little quicker through four, eight, uh, chapter 414 through 843. There's a definition of a man named Melchizedek uh, right there in your notes. And I know you folks can read, uh, but it would be really important if you don't understand. Melchizedek is in a, part of the studies called typology, and that that there's moments in David's life that look a whole lot like moments in Jesus' life. In fact, there are moments in Elijah's life that look like Jesus' life. And there's moments in Elisha's life that look like Jesus' life. And there's moments in Moses' life that looks like Jesus. And that's all called typology. Meaning that there's something being said in the Old Testament that's being demonstrated in the New. Melchizedek is an interesting character because he's the only person in the Bible who is noted just like Jesus as being a priest and a king. Now, I don't know, Rick, if you've ever seen this, but there are some scholars who like to suggest that they think Melchizedek was Jesus. They think he came down in this form and met with Abraham. It's possible because what was Abraham's response when Melchizedek showed up? Abraham had just taken his family back and conquered another king and had taken in, you know, what the King James used to make me giggle in high school called the booty. (laughs) That always made still. I'm still a junior high boy. And so they bring in all these treasures and crop, or excuse me, and cattle and horses and donkeys and everything else, and they'd have them all in. When he met Melchizedek, when Abraham met him, he took 10% of everything he had just won in the battle that God provided, and he gave it to the priest king. And then you don't hear another word about Melchizedek to the book of Hebrews. So what's it all about? Okay? Priest and king. Only one other person in the Bible. It's unique status. The person who is the mediator and the provider. So, number one, seeing Jesus as a caring high priest. How could you be an uncaring high priest? You guys know what the high priest did, right? He offered sacrifices for all the people. But part of his sacrifices before God was the high priest had to approve what you brought in. So, how could you be an uncaring high priest? Keep turning people away until they met your satisfaction. Was Jesus a caring or an uncaring high priest? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So he took people that brought worthless sacrifices and he exchanged them for himself. Number two, what's the warning? Go on to maturity. This is one of those favorite passages that preachers like to write around the room. Get off the milk, start taking meat. My wife has been traveling a lot for business recently and it's been fun to watch Braden go from a little 10-year-old who lets his mom do everything to being a little guy who looks at his dad when his mom's gone. He's like, I'll make my lunch. I, I mean, and I know she'll ruin it when she comes home tonight. She's going to make his lunch tomorrow because she's going to try to catch up for the five or six days she's been gone. I'm like, you're not doing him any good. He got up the other morning. I went down and hit the treadmill. I know you, you think I just lied to you, but I do. I went down and hit the treadmill and I came upstairs. He had breakfast. He had made his... Uh, or he made his lunch and had brushed his teeth. It's like, wow. And he goes, you proud of me? And I said, absolutely, buddy. That's how you get mature. You start doing things for yourself, you can do for yourself. And I said, when your mom comes back, if I catch you laying on the couch, I swear to God above, you're going to meet Jesus by the end of that day. (laughs) What is the author of Hebrews telling us? What's the warning? It's really easy when Jesus offers you new life to never grow up to just let him continue. Let everybody else do for you. Uh, you know, I, I read a lot of stuff about what makes the culture of a community called the church grow. And I don't mean grow for more people. I mean get real. If you have a, if you have a team as a coach and you have you know, 11 baseball players that are really good, your goal in growing your team isn't to have 22 baseball players. No, it's to have your 11 players be able to play and play every position and love the game and do their best. That's what you're after. So when I talk about growing a church, that's what I mean. And the truth is, the stuff that I read, it concludes with this. The one thing that can stop a church from becoming the kind of team that can win what God's called us to do is people who make it about themselves. What I like, what I want, what I don't want, what I'll never like. And uh, it's unfortunate, the number of preachers I speak to who don't get the privilege of being at a place like this. And I'm not blowing kisses at you to blow kisses at you. But there are a lot of churches where any idea is shot down to show who's in control. And it doesn't have to be leadership, it can just be members. I praise God. I think the reason churches like ourselves, Forest Park, College, I think the reason they're growing is because people are starting to get over themselves and starting to realize... I'm one of many, and we're all trying to win this thing and get people to know Christ in a deeper way. That's what the author here tells us to do. Don't be stunted in your growth. Abandon anything in your life that does not draw you closer to Christ. Number three, God's promises are an anchor for the soul. Now, if I can be slightly critical tonight, I'm going to choose to be. And here's what I will say in this moment. I think for many of us, You trust other people to know what God really said. You trust your preacher to know what's really in the Bible and what's not. Uh, George Barna just came out with some research, and he said 63 or 64%, uh, low 60s anyway. He said of people who attend church 40 times a year, 60% of those people plus have never read their Bible. Just have never read it. How can you defend the faith that's within you if you don't know what the faith is about? You don't know what's been promised you. You don't know what's available to you. So it's just a challenge to all of us. If you want your soul anchored, why does suffering wipe us out? Because it's hard and because we're not sure God really loves us if he makes us suffer. If you read your Bible, you would begin to prepare your heart to suffer for the kingdom. You wouldn't be shocked when it happens. 
So it's, it's promises like that. It's knowing who God is. It's being able to face the fact when the, one day a doctor looks me in the eyes and says, Mark, you have cancer. Okay. I should be preparing myself the entire time for that prognosis. Not fatalistically, but saying, okay, I'm going to have a chance to look a doctor in the face and say, you know what? My God's bigger than this. I'm going to walk through that door and I'm going to be fine on the other side. A lot of hope. It's easy to say it when I think I'm healthy. But I, I do try to spend a lot of time saying to God, you have been so good to me for the first 50 years. If the rest of my life stunk out loud, I couldn't complain. Because I know who you are. Like I said, it's easy now. I might be a crying baby next week and go, I've got it. I don't know. But the truth is, where's the anchor of my soul? Is it in Jesus or is it in my comfort, my health, my prosperity, the fact that somebody likes me? All right. Number four, the superiority of Jesus priesthood. Superiority of Jesus priesthood. And I gave you some scriptures under there, especially what I found is a real healthy outline of Hebrews 7. And uh, I hope you'll... Uh, take your Bible sometime when you're looking for something to study and just take chapter 7 with that outline and, and enjoy it. Treat it like a good steak. Take your time. Savor it. And then chapter, or number 5 there in chapter 8 is what are the implications of Jesus' priesthood? Okay, if the final sacrifice has been paid, then what now? This is what a Jew would ask. So do I still need to go to the temple to make a sacrifice? So here's one of those ethics questions. After Jesus died on the cross and began the church, have you noticed in the book of Acts that it says that the disciples went to the temple? Peter and John went to the temple to pray. Doesn't that seem weird that you would go to the temple to pray if Jesus had tore the temple down, theoretically? Do you think excuse me, early Christians may have still offered sacrifices? So I want you to ponder is there, he's saying here, know what Jesus did and make your sacrifices now not goats and sheep, but love, compassion, and kindness. That's the sacrifice you make. Forgive your enemy. Love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the sacrifices that Christ wants now. So I've heard Christians say this and I know what they're saying, but I want to correct it because I, can hypercorrect easily. And they'll say, well, there's no more sacrifices. Not true. There's just different ones. But our different ones, the implication is, I don't sacrifice to be saved. I sacrifice because I'm already saved. So, story in my wife's life. Uh, Heather's grandfather passed away, and we had this old beater car. And she'd had this car since college, and we got every mile we could out of that thing. And her grandpa told her, when I go, I want you to take the Oldsmobile. He had one of those slick grandpa Oldsmobiles, and he washed that thing every day, and the engine never had anything in it that didn't need to be in it, and just amazing little vehicle. And so Heather found a college kid, and she gave her car to that college kid. How could she do that? This college kid was like, you're going to give me your car? She's like, yeah, yeah, it, it still runs. It's not pretty, but it still runs. She gave the uh, kid the keys, and off she went. Well, how could she do that? Because she knew Grandpa was giving her the olds. And it was, it was sweet. So was it really a sacrifice for her to give? To the college student, was it? Absolutely. To Heather's heart, was it? No. Do you know when, you, you, when you've been infected by grace, 
is when you can give somebody something and they can't imagine you'd give it to them and the reason you can give it to them is because there's something better for you here. So how can you forgive your enemy? Because you know the forgiveness that awaits you right here. Not because you're going to do it because it's already coming. You can give away something that makes no sense to somebody else when you know the goodness and promises of the one who's offering it. That's the implications of the sacrifice. I can give my life away knowing that there's life after death. And do I want to fear death or do I want to trust life? And the Hebrew author even says, and there was law written on stone that's no longer written on stone. Where's it written? How did you know when you were 18 months to two years of age that when mommy said not to touch something, how did you know to wait till she left the room to touch it? How did you know it too? to pull your hand back when she turned around? How did you know, too, to blame the dog when it was you that knocked something off the table? Was there a class for, for liars, two-year-old liars? <laughs> you go in there and say, here's what you do to get what you want. No, there's something about our human nature, isn't there? Now, the reason you know, Paul says, the reason you know what is right and wrong is because it has been written on your conscience. And what sin does is take your conscience, and the biblical word Paul uses is sears it. Okay, I only know what the word searing means because I worked at McDonald's. And I'd reach in this box of frozen meat hockey pucks, and I'd lay 12 of them down on the grill, and I would, I'd hit the timer, and one minute on one side, and then I'd flip them over. And when I flipped them over, they gave me this thing that looked like an old air hockey paddle, and it was made of steel. And I would set that down. It had been on the grill. I would take a rag. I would grab the ball of that. And I would set it down on every hamburger. And I would sear it down. The heat from the top would meet the heat from the bottom. And it would, it would thaw it out. Dry it out. That was Freudian. It would thaw it out quicker that way. And once I seared it, it was another minute. I flipped them over. Onions, blah, blah, blah on it. Put it on that thing. Wrap it up and send it up front. Now... Paul uses that exact word when he says, our sin takes this malleable conscience that understands right and wrong from the earliest stages and it compresses it so it can't feel anymore. And Paul even says in Romans chapter one, that's what put, now I'm not talking about anybody not in this room, that's what puts every single one of us in this room in the condition where there are some things that God has told us is wrong and we stop and say, so, I wanna do what I wanna do. Every time we say yes to no and no to yes, we just keep getting compacted and hardened. And isn't that funny? The Bible calls it a hard heart. How does it become hard? Because it's fighting against what it knows is natural. All right. What's special about uh, Hebrews 9 through 10? And that is not chapter 10 the 397th verse. I don't, if that's on your notes like it is mine, that makes me laugh. That might be the longest chapter in the history of all mankind. The first thing is significance of the earthly sanctuary. Okay, to a Jew, did the sanctuary matter? Oh my goodness, did it matter. The cleansing, the washing of your hands. Why does the Catholic Church have a font out front that has holy water in it for people to sprinkle themselves when they walk in. It goes all the way back to the origins of the Jewish faith where they would wash their hands. They would wash their face. They would never walk into the presence of God filthy. So 
that sanctuary mattered to them. We can relate to this one. Because if you grew up in a church with pews, do you remember the day they took them out? Oh my goodness, you'd have thought it was a funeral in Mount Pleasant when we took those out. People, I'm going to see, there was a lady wept when the last pew walked out of there. Like all of a sudden, we'd replace Jesus with Satan. She loved that. She could say, well, I remember when we put those in. And she had fond memories, and I'm not dismissing those. But what you sit on, or even if you sit, is not the presence of God. This is not where God comes on Sunday mornings. It's not. So we get the wars over changing a worship center or doing something different. You know, when I first drove out here, I said, this is the Lego building. You can see when they just kept snapping Legos onto this building. You can see every decade. From the, from the flat cement in the 1960s to the 1970 basement to the 1980s to the 1990s to the 2010s, there's, every decade's got one. And who knows, we'll be an Alba before the Lord comes back, but we're just going to keep snapping on, right? But there are people that have, this is a sacred place for them because it's a place like this that God got their attention for the biggest time. To the Jews, they had that same sentimentality to the sanctuary. And what does the author of Hebrews say? The presence of God is no longer located behind a curtain. The presence of God is located inside each one of us. When Jesus said, I have to leave so the comforter can come, everybody's like, no, no, don't leave. And he's like, no, no, you don't understand. Physically, I'm limited to one place at a time. I can walk on water, yeah. I can walk through a wall, uh uh-huh. But I can only be in one location at a time. He said, now my spirit's going to be in every one of you, and you are going to be my tabernacle. You're going to be my place of worship. God is going to reside in you. And I can say those words. I know deep down I'm not going to understand it. What I think for me, I think what's going to happen on the day that I either die and meet Jesus in that moment, or if I'm here when he blows the whistle and says everybody out of the pool, I think in that moment, I feel deep inside, I'm going to break down in tears to realize what a privilege I had to have the presence of God in me and how little I took advantage of that, how little I honored that. So he's greater than angels, he's greater than Moses, he's greater than the sacrificial system, and he's greater than the place of worship. I had a student at Ozark say something to me the other day, and it was, it was a healthy conversation, but uh, we got going on it. The, the whole concept of how much money churches spend on buildings. And, you know, I want to be a little bit careful of what I'm about to say. Please don't misunderstand me. But if, if a place like this, the amount of money we spend on this place, makes people feel like it's disingenuous or insincere, you would be totally offended by the temple that David built. The one that Solomon uh, inaugurated if you read the amount, I've read different amounts of, like in today's dollars, how much of what is listed that David corralled from the people of Israel to build that tabernacle and the labor and the time, we would be sickened by the amount of money spent on that. So am I saying gaudy buildings are okay? No, no, why are you doing it? The Israelites wanted to show of a God and, and everything that was given to that came from what God had already given them. They didn't punish other people for it. They didn't steal They didn't make promises they couldn't keep. They gave from what they had. And when David corralled that, do you know how rich of a nation that was to be able to have all those resources for the asking? So was it amount of the building, or excuse me, was it the amount of the building, or was it why they built it? So the earthly sanctuary, that's you. So 
I don't mean physically on the outside. How do you present the quality? What do you bring into the sanctuary in worship? Meaning you. Number two, the power of the blood of Christ. And this is where the book turns in a beautiful way. Instead of talking about all the other outer trappings, he comes right in and tells him the difference. The reason you are the earthly sanctuary is you've been covered in blood. If you notice, it's really kind of a weird thing uh, in the Old Testament, especially in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, that the priests would come in and they would slaughter a, a, a bull or a goat or a lamb or, or whatever, and they would take the blood and they would sprinkle it on this and sprinkle it on that. And he'd put it on his earlobe and on his elbow and on his wrist and on his foot or ankle or, right, ankle or knee. He, right down the right side of his body. He was preparing himself as blood covered. So the blood of Christ is what allows you and I to be the sanctuary. Not our goodness, but we're covered in his blood. It's like the blood over the doorpost on the day of the Passover. Number three, the Old Testament sacrificial system prefigured Christ's death. It got us there. It did not save us. I'm not sure theologically I want to go all the way with that, but just last week I read on a passage about this, and one commentator said, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament was a bookmark. It held our place in the story. But the story wasn't completed until Christ died, and then everyone who had ventured their faith in the plan of God was rewarded. I just like that. The bookmark makes sense to me. Just marked a place in history. Number four, the finality of Christ's sacrifice, once and for all. I'd like to comment more on that, but I would ruin my sermon on Sunday, and so I'm going to make you wait. We'll talk about the finality on Sunday, all right? And if you don't come back, ask me next week, and we'll fill you in. Number five, the next warning. Warning against turning away from God. And here's one of the passages found in Hebrews that most of us know. Do not forsake the assembling of some, or the assembling together as is the habit of some. Now, unfortunately, we have turned that into, how dare you miss Sunday morning worship. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about much more than that. When the family of God gets together to serve, are you a part of that? When they get together to grieve and celebrate, are you a part of that? One of the things we have to be real careful, and I'm going to start with me. I am busy. You are busy. Our society's way too busy. With my wife in California, I have the utmost respect for single parents. I absolutely. I just can't imagine the strength and stamina you have to have to do this all the time. Spoiled rotten. When I look at this forsaking the assembling of some, it is easy for us in our culture to look at each other and congratulate each other with how busy we are. But are you busy doing things that matter or are you busy doing things that have no substance at all? So, am I a guy who thinks that every time the church doors are open, you ought to be in there? No, no, I think we ought to shut the church doors more and go together out there. So, I think there's a lot of things you can do that make a difference. I think you can coach soccer and be the church. I think you can go serve in your neighborhood and be the church. I think you can walk through the hospitals and pray with people and encourage people. I think you can do all of those kind of things. But do not forsake the assembly or the, the assembly of the of the believers, as is the habit of some. You're talking about don't turn away from God. This is the warning. Don't let yourself become distracted. 
and walk away from the one who's provided you new life. Don't go back to the old life. I, I've used the story before, but uh, it's a true story. They, well, no, actually it's not. But there's a correlation that's been made between a man who was a homeless person who was uh, eating out of a dumpster and they invited him in a restaurant. I thought it was, and Swopes told me it wasn't. And the owner of the restaurant said, no, no, you come in. I want you to come in every day uh, and eat lunch. And every day you come here and I will provide you lunch. And so for two or three days, the homeless man would come in and, and he would have the best of what he had that day. And he would put it in front of him, soup and bread, and got, got him a good meal in his belly. And after two or three days, the man stopped showing up again and they found him digging out of the dumpster. And according to the legend, when the restaurant guy asked him, why aren't you coming in the restaurant? He said, I'm just too busy to sit down and eat. It's kind of a graphic illustration if you think about it. What happens is we're eating garbage. We're filling our lives with stuff we're not supposed to fill it with, but we know how to do that. And that makes us feel comfortable. It's the junk food phenomenon, right? uh, Nobody really likes Cheetos. I don't think everybody woke up one day going, that's the greatest thing God ever made. But I find myself eating Cheetos every now and then. I'm going, you could eat a packing peanut. It has as much nutrition and flavor. But it's in the cabinet. I'm going to eat it. And then I blame, well, why is it in our cabinet? Because I probably bought it. So how do we get away from doing the things that matter? We go back to our habits and routines of eating out of dumpsters. Now, please, if you're feeling shamed right now, it's not my point. My point is, who controls your schedule? Who controls what's important to you? You do. If I told you I want this to be important to you, you'd laugh at me. But if you tell yourself this should be important to you, what can you do with that? So don't become distracted and turn away from God. All right, let's jump to our conclusion. Final three chapters or four chapters. In 10 through 13, remainder of 10 through 13, the importance of faith, Hebrews chapter 11. This may be in the top five chapters in all of our scriptures. In fact, I'm very excited. Starting in July we're going to preach through Hebrews chapter 11. So in July and August, we're going to spend uh, eight weeks focused on the characters and stories of Hebrews 11 and what it does to teach us what faith is. All right, so now you've got to come back for months. But what is the importance of faith and what actually is faith? Number two, Jesus as the author and perfecter of faith. Go back to my opening intro comments. You want to know what God looks like? Watch how Jesus acts in all circumstances. So what does the author and perfecter of faith mean? Author. Can you have faith if it's not in Jesus? Ah, trick question, right? That'd be a good essay question. Is it faith if it's not in Jesus? It's a very weak faith. But most of our faith is wishful thinking. It's not expectation. Faith is something you bet your life on, not you bet a sandwich on. Okay, someone said to me, all right, you know, it's an omen. Cubs play Cardinals. Opens MLB Sunday night on Easter the way God wants it. I think any resurrection day that ends with Major League Baseball is of the Lord. And Cubs Cardinals is the only game being played on the planet. And I had someone come to me the other day, go, you know, it's an omen. Cubs beat the Cards. They're going to the World Series. Yeah. I'm not putting any faith in that. 50 years of following those guys, I just hope they win. And if they lose, I'm kind of expecting that too. What's faith? 
Faith is the fact that when you go out and you do something that could cost you everything because you're guaranteed, remember, that instead of accepting this, I got a better thing coming here. That's why I want to be cautious. I don't know how many times in my life I've really demonstrated faith. I've demonstrated belief, but have I demonstrated faith? Faith has to cost you something. There has to be an inherent risk to it. So we're going to spend this summer talking about what does faith look like? How did Moses demonstrate? How about Enoch? How about Cain and Abel? How about Moses and Abraham? How about those that died and persecuted for the cause? What did their faith look like? Because when we study what faith is identified in Scripture, it'll take away all those things that we devalue faith by when we simply say, well, I believe this will happen one day. That's not faith. You've done a mathematical calculation of the probability of something. So, off we go. Number three, a new perspective on hardship. Suffering. What does suffering bring to our lives and why does God let us go through it? I talk really big when I pick on my wife about how she's the softie in our uh, marriage, but the other day with her not there to save the day, there was a homework assignment done and I watched all day. Do you get your homework done? Yeah, I'm going to do it later. Get your homework done. I'm going to do it later. Get your homework done. I'm going to do it later. You're going to bed in 15 minutes. You know what happened at the 12 minute mark? Dad, I need to do my homework. I said, "Uh uh-uh. You had all day, buddy. You go to bed. You want to get up early and finish it, but you need to get to bed right now. It's your bedtime. He pouted, blamed me. I'm going to flunk the class. It's like, yeah, you like fourth grade. (laughs) But do you know who couldn't sleep that night? Me. Because I'm like, doggone it. I should have let him do it. But no, he played me. And I had this whole discussion, right? I was fighting myself the entire time. So I got up in the morning. I said, you need to do your homework. And he started this whine. And I, I'm not going to get it right. I'm going to fail the assignment. And finally, I just looked at him and I said, listen to me right now. Life's not going to get any easier. Get your homework done. Do the very best you can. See what happens. And I'm thinking, man, I wish somebody would have told me that at 10. Because I have run my entire life away from any difficulty. It was hard for me to let him fail. Now, Somebody came up to me uh, on Sunday, and it was rather interesting. I was talking about when Judas, if you weren't here, I brought up the illustration, how could Jesus let Judas kiss him? I would not have let that man put his lips anywhere near me. In fact, if it was Jesus, he'd have had leprosy of the lips, and he'd have died that night. (laughs) Truth. I mean, I'm not a good person. But Jesus let him kiss him. And in that moment, I walked outside, and and, uh, I was standing out by the prayer table, and uh, Gene came up to me and shook my hand, and he goes, think it was bad for Jesus to let Judas kiss him. How do you think God looked at that moment? I'd never thought of that before. So, all of this. Hardship. I don't think we can see a God in heaven who's distant and unconcerned, who says, hey, you had your chance, go to your room, go to bed. I think if I had a sleepless night looking at the clock going, should I get him up now so he can get it done? Should I get him up now so he can get it done? I want him to be successful. He'll learn a hard lesson later, right? What is God doing in heaven when he's watching us suffer? I don't think he's up there going, oh, come on. You know, my dad used to say to me all the time, dry up. Like it was that easy. I could just stop crying. You know, we're dry. We move on, right? I, I love the fact that when I see Jesus crying over Jerusalem, he was weeping not for what they would do to him. He was weeping for what would be done to them because they rejected him. So we have a God in heaven who looks down. He's not saying dry up. This passage here talks about the new perspective on hardship, that God lets us go through difficulties so we learn. Uh, I coach a little, I'm 
I help coach this little travel team. It's fun. They're not very good, but they're, they're cute, and they play hard, and they're fun. But we've, all the coaches have decided, don't coach your own kid. Let us do it. So Braden gets to the plate, and I know his swing. I taught him his swing. And I see him drop his hands, and I just have to turn away and walk away. I can't not help him. Now you may say, oh, you overcooked. No, no, I love the little boy. So I have to actually walk down the fence and turn my back to it because I can't stand to see him not do the best he can. If I have that capability, what does God do when he looks at us going, I'm going to let you strike out here so that you become better when I want to make sure he's successful every time and that doesn't help anybody. We use terminology around here very often because of my desire and love of sports. Uh, you'll learn more in a loss than you'll ever learn in a victory. And sometimes God lets us lose certain things so he can get us greater wins down the line. I mean, how would you like to have been Jesus starting your journey, knowing from what you've read in Scripture, one of the 12 you just selected is going to betray you? Talk about hardship. God never even said to Jesus, it's all going to be success and flowers and parades. He said, no, one of the 12 you invest in love deeply is going to walk on you and going to turn you in for profit. So, perspective on hardship. The book of Hebrews tells the Jews. Now, let's go back to our audience again. Would it be important for the Jews, knowing that within eight years, everything they valued and loved in their culture would be taken from them by Rome? Again? Absolutely. Number four, last warning, against missing out on God's grace. Missing out on God's grace. And what the author does here is he presents to us a pretty powerful image of the power of God on Mount Sinai. Remember, there was an earthquake. There, were, there was fire seen on top of the mountain. There was smoke. And the Israelites thought Moses had died when he was up there and didn't return after 40 days. And the author of Hebrews says, remember what happened on Sinai. Because that's the God you don't want to meet in a dark alley. So accept his grace through Jesus so that this Old Testament God of wrath, his wrath is at our sin, not their sin, our sin. And Jesus provides a means by which that sin has been sacrificed for and it's no longer to your account. Don't walk away and forget that grace. Don't forget that goodness. So I told you about Heather's vehicle. She got rid of the old beater that we had and she gave it to a friend. Do you know how hard it was for her to get rid of the olds? Really hard. You know, I, I won't say she cried when we got rid of the car, but I'll say she was very emotional. Why? Because it, it wasn't a car. It was what? It was, it was her grandpa's car. So we get the point, right? So when we forget God's grace, the, in fact, all the way back in Hebrews chapter 6, it says there, to a certain extent when we walk away from the will of God to pursue our own passions, we re-crucify Christ. That's, a, that's an incredible image found in that passage. Number five is the last thing, concluding exhortations. This is what, you know, this is the, you know, shout out to so-and-so, grateful for this, remember this, remember this, remember this. It's a wrap-up to the whole book. So if I gave you a piece of paper right now and I said number one and two, First question is, give me the synopsis of the book of Hebrews. What would you tell me? Gee, this is greater. Second question is an essay question. Not being a Jew, what did you learn 
from our overview of it today that helps you walk by faith. Written to the Jews, the symbolism matters. Written to us, we have to put ourselves in a mindset to understand the Jewish mindset so we can understand how to access this truth and how to live it out. If you want to get the best taste of what uh, the book of Hebrews is about, chapters 5, 6, and 7, chapters 11 and 12. If you want to sample it, add it to your collection. It's a book that can be read in its entirety and probably should be read in its entirety if you never have first. And then you can go back and find those really chunk passages that talk about the power of Jesus and how it affects the way we walk by faith. Any questions or comments? Try to get you out of here a little bit early so you can uh, get down to the kids' zone or have an adult conversation before the hallways fill up with little people. All right, you guys have a great night. We'll see you Easter Sunday morning. Thank you for listening to a Wednesday night class from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these classes or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.